another day in Memphis, and today I have the amazing pleasure of sitting down with Willie Bearden, who I know through the Blues Music Awards, and he is the producer of the Music Awards, the man who makes it work from the backstage and controls everything. Um, but he is way more than that, as I find out. He is a writer, he's a photographer, he's a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. He does uh, a lot of speaking engagements. He's, he's an authority on many things south, and it's such a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Man, thank you so much. It's, it's an honor for me. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've admired your work for a long time, and I want to tell you, before we get started, good, I just want to tell you thank you so much for the work you do on the in memoriam video it's that my, is my. that's one of my, one of the most touching things i think we do in the show and you always make it so special and and everybody just you know you you kind of get it i mean so many of these people you know i don't know I don't know them, mm -hmm. and I go back. Lots of times, I'll go in and Google somebody that I've seen, and think, "Oh my God!" You know, thank you for keeping their memory alive. Well, I think you know what? It's the great photographers they get to work with and who capture the essence of those artists. It's, it's yeah. for me just a total pleasure to be involved in that. So, yeah. but that's how I know you. Every year around this time of the year, I contact you and say, "I'm going to send you something." Yeah. Uh, and this has been probably over 10 years. Yes, it has. But, it and has. little by little, I get to know you. And, I, and last year, we had a little chat somewhere, outside somewhere. And yeah. I thought, I need to talk to him more. <laughs> I need to know about him. And then I did research. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot to this man that I need to find out about. Let me just start off about, you know, we, we're talking about the, the Blues Music Awards. Yeah. Every year, I go back at one point or another in the show and just to say hello and give you a hug. Yeah. And then... It's always, you're just always calm. There's like 10 guys back there controlling videos and sound and whatever. And you're always just, there's no frantic craziness. I know it must be crazy, but this year I walk back and you're taking photos of me and I'm, there's a show running. <laughs> Tell me about your perspective of the show. Well, I, I have, I've kind of lived my life for the last 30 years producing shows. I do corporate shows around the country. I, I just do a three or four now, but I used to do, I, one year, I think back in the mid nineties, we did like 15 big shows, wow. you know, everywhere, you know, from Vegas and, you know, New York city and Boston and San Francisco and just all over the place. And the one thing that I saw is that not so much with corporate shows, but with music shows that you had so many people who felt like they were in charge and nobody really knew everything. No, nobody, you know, they, they didn't have great teams of people with them. And so things would get chaotic backstage. And, you know, you either have a steady hand or you don't. Right. There, there's not a lot of gray area in there, you know, because when things happen, and things are going to happen, you know, because there are a million moving parts in this thing. You know, it's never been done before. It's that giant jigsaw puzzle that's never been put together before. You're going to put it together one time, and then and then you're going to throw the pieces away and bring them back together the next year and try to make it work. Um, so that's kind of what I saw. I saw that, that, okay, if I know what I'm doing, and especially if I have good people, I have a great team of people, and, you know, and 
with those people, I have a good understanding of what they're doing. The guy who's running the moving lights, the right. guy who's running the teleprompter, the guy who's running, you know, uh, the, the stage monitors, uh, you know, just the stage crew, uh, the technical director, you know, the one who's telling, okay, let's put these images on the outside screen and this image on the middle screen and let's do our branding this way. So there are just a million little things like that. But I, I, I started educating myself to understand how to do, in, in basically, certainly not as good as those people who do those for a job, but I understand right. those in, in a very basic way. So when they tell me, hey, Willie, we can't do this because blah, 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 I understand that. Uh, when I first started doing music shows, I was asked to, by Marvell Thomas, Rufus Thomas's son, uh, Marvell was a good friend of mine, and unfortunately, he just passed away about mm. three months ago, and we miss him dearly. I talked to William Bell about that. William and Marvell were great, great friends for 60 years, I guess, 65 wow. years. Uh, but Marvell came to me and asked me to produce the Rufus Thomas 80th birthday bash when Rufus turned 80. Right. Um, and gosh, this was in 96, I said, maybe 97. And, uh, and so, and he told me, he said, listen, I'll take care of the music. He said, you take care of everything else. I said, okay. I said, but I got to tell you, I've been doing corporate shows and there's no goofing around at corporate shows. You're doing this for people who have to get their message across. And it's a certain way. I said, I said, I got to tell you this, I'll do it, but I have to be the coach. Somebody has to be the coach. Somebody has to be the ultimate, you know, arbiter of what happens right. and how we do things. He said, you got it. He said, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so, so we did that show and we had a lot of people who had worked on the Blues Music Awards before. And so a couple, and I had always wanted to do the Blues Music Awards. I really had. So about a month later, I got a call from the people who were running the Blues Music uh uh, associate uh, the the Blues Foundation at the time. Howard Stovall was right. was the CEO, and Howard said, "Man, I went to that, uh, you know, uh, Rufus 80th birthday bash. It was great. Can you come talk to me?" So I went over and and talked with him and just kind of told him my philosophy of doing things is, "Hey, I'm I'm not here to be the boss. I'm not here to make all the decisions, but somebody kind of has to be that guy, and that's the only way to run a show like this." And he said. Why don't you try to do that for us? I said, okay. And so, you know, I did it that first year. I think my first year was 98. And um, so, you know, I went in. Uh, there were a lot of holdover people and people who were, you know, kind of had their roles, but they really didn't know what to do. So I just got everybody together. I said, listen, I said, I got one thing to say. The show is on the stage. It's not backstage because that's where I saw the problems right. were that people were running around and weren't, weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They wanted to go back and hang with BB King. They wanted to get their picture made with Pine Top Perkins. They wanted to hang out with Ruth Brown and that's cool. But when you're working, there's no time for that. So I just think I kind of cut my teeth in a different part of the business that really got me ready to come in and do something like this that is a very complex and difficult show to do. And those are the people I've surrounded myself with for really the last 19 years. Well, the other thing I didn't mention is the fact that you, you are yourself a musician. 
I am, yeah. So I think that also comes to in play because you understand music and you, you can get the... Because musicians are often, you know, not the easiest ones to kind of herd and organize, right? Exactly, so, <laughs> exactly, so you know. To pull off a show, and, and for anybody who hasn't been to the Blues Music Awards, it's a big show. It's yeah. massive. It's yeah. it's awards, but it's a lot of music. Yeah. And that means a lot of set uh, changes in the instrumentation and whatever. So it's, a, it's an amazing piece of work that you yeah. do. Let me go back to where you come from you were born in rolling forks mississippi yeah i was actually born in vicksburg we didn't have a we had a little hospital in rolling fork but vicksburg is about 40 miles south of rolling fork on highway 61 right and uh and so i i grew up in rolling fork which is a very small town birthplace of muddy waters you know and and the morgan fields still live down there i grew up you know, knowing Aubrey Morgan Field and, and uh, Muddy's half-brother, Matthew, was the bicycle mechanic at the Western Auto Store. And we used to sit up there. When I was a kid, we'd sit up there with him and watch him respoke a bicycle wheel. And I thought to myself, Matthew Morganfield is the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> I did. I just always thought he was like a brilliant guy because he could put the spokes on a wheel and spin it and it was just dead true, you know. So you know, there, tell, there, tell me about Rolling Fork. I mean, for I mean, people know it as where the birthplace of Muddy Waters. Yeah. But from your point of view, how would you describe it? And what what is that place? What do people do there? Well, you know, Rolling Fork, and and, and I think the Delta in general. The Delta was the last frontier in this part of the country to be settled. So all these other places, you know, Memphis, Memphis has been here since 1819. You know, all these other towns have been here. They really couldn't get, I mean, there were plantations, some plantations along the river and along some of the, like the Sunflower River and the Yazoo uh, down through the Delta, but there were no roads down there. So really, people didn't start going into the Delta and living in the Delta uh, till around the turn of the 20th century. So... You know, here you had this, this, you know, you had the railroad that, that went in in the late 1800s. They started building roads, and, and so they had, you know, little packet boats and things that went up the creeks and rivers, and most, and most of the plantations had landings on those things. That's, those were the, their highways. But when people started moving in there, it, it's amazing because you have this, you have this, this, these groups of people who are looking for places to catch hold in America. So in Rolling Fork, and I thought it was like this all over the country when I was growing up, here are the, here are the groups of people we had in Rolling Fork. We had a big population of Jewish people. We had a big population of Chinese people. We had a big population of people from Greece and uh, Syria and uh, Italy wow. because all of these folks had come into this country looking for opportunity. And so, you know, you got a place that doesn't have a dry goods store. What do you do? Guess what? You know, here's this guy who's literally selling rags, this Jewish immigrant from, from Russia who's selling rags out of a cart. Within a couple of years, he's got a little store there. And so, you know, he, he runs the dry goods store, and more people come. In Rolling Fork, which is a town, when I was growing up there, there's a town of about 2,500 people, so a very, very small town. We had four, count them, four grocery stores 
owned by Chinese families. Think about it. think about that <laughs> yeah. just for a second. There was there okay, was so a, this is the South that I, I I can't you know I don't know. It's not the stereotypical South that I had imagined. This yeah. is interesting. Yeah, and and it definitely is not. I worked at when I was a kid, and my brother Jeff for ten years worked for this family, the Jabours, and they were from Syria. And they had a grocery store there, and and I worked for them. I didn't work quite ten years. I would quit too much. I would get mad at them. But but you know, I worked for the Jabours, and and they were first generation immigrants from Syria. And you know, and just on and on. I mean, I knew people really from just about every ethnicity. I always tell people jokingly, if we had had a couple of Pakistani cab drivers, we would have had kind of everybody, <laughs> you know. But but it, it was it was really funny, and, and people kind of forget that. But if you go like to Leland, Mississippi, you know, where do you go to eat? You know, you you go to Fratizzi's, you go to Lillo's, and all all of the Italian folks had um, they had a lot of the a lot of the juke joints. And they had a lot of the, the restaurants. So the Italian food in the Delta is incredible. <laughs> so, you know, people don't know that a lot. No. Uh, you know, uh, people always, the, the, the historian Shelby Foote, um, who people might know from Ken Burns' Civil War series, great guy and, and, and became a great friend of mine. Uh, and it was very encouraging to me for everything I've done and really helped me a lot. But he used to always ask, you know, where did the tamale come from in the Delta? And we finally figured out that, you know, that that the Mexican migrant workers were coming up, really they were being chased out of the Rio Grande Valley in Texas uh, by the boll weevil. And they landed in the Mississippi Delta, just still picking cotton. And, and they brought their culture on. So what you have in the Delta is you have these disparate groups bringing their culture in, and it all kind of melds into one thing, See, you I, know? Because I hear the stories of, I mean, it's always seemed to be very black and white. And no. I was kind of curious to find out about that issue when you were growing up and how you perceived all, all that. But this is something completely different. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, it, it really is. I mean, if you go down through the Delta and you start looking at signs on stores, you see with the dry goods stores and, and things like that, you see all the Jewish names. I have a house in Rolling Fork now. I bought that house, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And I, I go down there and I do work when I have a lot of editing to do or writing. I, I go down there and I'll spend a week or two or whatever. But that house was built in 1928 which was the year after the Great Mississippi Flood by Sam Rosenthal, who is a Russian Jewish immigrant. Sam Rosenthal was the mayor of Rolling Fork from 1927, <laughs> just when the, right before the, the flood hit, uh, till about 1970. Hmm. You know, think about that. So It's a long time. Yeah, so, you know, we just had this, it really is, I think, you know, when you think about it as the last frontier around here, you you do see that there's, you know, there's opportunity for people. And people are desperate for some place to catch hold. If you came to Memphis, you know, in 1910, you know, there's stores everywhere. 
there's not a lot of opportunity and people did make opportunity here but certainly down there it was rough there weren't many roads you know and you really had to get it you know to to gain some purchase down there how did you how do you look back on your childhood there like the experience of growing up in a small town you know it was great um I was born in 1950, so, so, you know, the World War II was still a very big deal for us. We knew so many people who had fought in the war, and, and that war was that watershed moment for everybody. It displaced so many people, people, you know, just, you know, had, who had never been out of the state of Mississippi, probably not out of a couple of counties, you know, are, are winding up, you know, fighting the Pacific or, you know, gone for three years, you know, to the war in Europe and all this. So it opened a lot of people's eyes and, and it damaged a lot of people too. Mm -hmm. But some people, you know, brought back wives. I knew this lady from England and she used to talk all the time. She was completely traumatized by the bombing of London, by the Blitzkrieg of London, right. you know, in, in, in 1940. You know, so th that was kind of one of those things that we always talked about. You know, the Second World War was very present because it had only been over five years when I was born. So, you know, by the time I was 10 years old, it was 15 years. And people who had been there, landed at Omaha Beach and all that, they still talked about that a lot. The other thing was that, you know, and, and I, I didn't know this until I got away from there, is I grew up, you know, in a black society. Mm -hmm. I mean, where we lived... We lived on the block that was right beside the railroad track, and it was the Illinois Central Railroad. So back then in the 50s and stuff, we still had hobos, and, and people would come and knock on our back door. My mother would always, you know, give them, you know, a couple of pieces of bacon or whatever was left over for breakfast. I remember that really well. Uh, everybody had a maid back then. We, we were poor people, but we had a maid, and she was an African-American woman. And, uh, and, uh, Alice Bailey raised me. I mean, she probably spanked me more than my mother did, you know. And, you know, and, and her son, Roosevelt, who was about maybe 10 years older than me, Roosevelt later <clears throat> had a juke joint there, you know. And, in fact, if you've ever seen that Bernie Imes book, the Mississippi Juke Joints. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great book. Bernie Imes is a wonderful, wonderful photographer. He has a picture of Roosevelt's Juke Joint <laughs> uh, from Rolling Fork. You know, but I grew up in a, in a black world. I mean, because back then, the population was probably, I don't know, and I'm just guessing, probably 60, 65% black and 30, 35% white. And uh, so... You know, it, but it was the you know it was it was the society I grew up in. But there you know? was it was total interaction between the different. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I mean, Pete Bailey was my friend, and he was he was uh, Alice Bailey's grandson who lived with it, and he was a, all the pictures I have of being a kid. There's me and my brother Jeff and Pete. You know, so I I didn't really I mean I knew that. You know, that that there were people who had problems with race. And certainly, if you went back and listened to people talk, then you would think they were very insensitive. We didn't learn how to do this for many years, you know, till the late 60s and things. You know, you start becoming aware, and you say, okay, this is, this is insensitive. This is not the way we need to, to talk about each other like this, you know. 
and you know you kind of had to learn but you know back then i you know there were lots of problems and i'm not gonna i'm not glossing over anything you know uh you know once the civil rights movement came in uh gosh so many people i mean if you went up and registered to vote and you were black then all of a sudden you didn't have credit at the grocery store anymore and everything worked on credit in the delta so how did you how did you view that as a person from the south and who who grew up with all these people i i became aware of it just like water dripping on a stone you know just little by little it kind of put a hole in my heart because I saw what was going on. And by the time I was about 15, I was fully aware of the inequities that were going on and how people said one thing and did another and how people were mistreated as sharecroppers and as people who had worked on people's places for years. I mean, you know, my first job was, was chopping cotton in the field. Now, now, there were me and my friend George, whose father owned the plantation, and about 80 black people out there chopping weeds out of cotton. Now, that was on the mound plantation, because there are Indian mounds all around, and right. the mound plantation. And it had rows that were a mile long, right along Highway 61. And it's hard work, it's tough work, but you know... People would sing in the fields and cut up, you know, and it's always like a boss out there, the man who had the had the file, who would file your hoe for you and make it sharp, you know, and he was like the, the leader out there. And so, you know, when I was, I think I was 12 then when I worked in the field, and, uh, you know, I mean, you're just out there with people you know. I mean, this one girl, Shirley Stewart, who was, who was a black girl, she and I were friends. I mean, she died last year, and she and I were friends forever. The second year I was out there, I got to tote water, which was kind of, I got a promotion. <laughs> and they had this, you know, you, you had like a big five-gallon galvanized bucket and a dipper. And we would go every morning and drive the truck. And they would they let us drive the truck. We were 12 or 13 years old, and we got to drive. We'd drive the truck up to the ice house, and we had this big 55-gallon drum filled with water and we put uh, like a hundred pound block of ice in there and so during the day when the people out there were chopping cotton they would holler and I could still hear it it would Wado and you'd go out and take the take the 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 bucket and the dipper and let everybody and we all drank out of the same dipper you know and, and you'd go around and give everybody water and I will tell this very short story I was out there one day, and it was in late June, and it was hot. Buddy, it was hot out there. And the dust, you know, would be 10 inches thick, you know, and you'd just keep your feet down in the dust, your barefoot, you know, and just kind of scoot your feet along so you wouldn't have to step on top of the dust because it was very hot. But the, everybody was way out in the field, probably two or 300 yards, and I was sitting up in the truck. And I didn't want to take any water out there. I heard, Wado, Wado. And I thought, I ain't going to. <laughs> so, so finally I looked out and I saw somebody coming toward me walking, a little cloud of dust coming toward me. And I got out and it was Shirley Stewart. She was this black girl who was my age. I was, I guess, 13 at the time. She came up to me. And she slapped me. I mean, she just, she came from the ground and slapped me upside the head and knocked me down in the dust. And she said, Willie Bearden, 
When somebody hollers for water, you better bring some damn water. And man, I tell you what, that was maybe the best business lesson I ever learned in my life. Hmm. That when people are serious, you need to take them seriously. I tell you what, I was out there with that dipper and that water. <laughs> Excuse me, you look like you use some water. <laughs> How about some water? You know, but it was that kind of thing. And people, I, I've had people, t- when I've told that story before, people say, I can't believe a, a you know, a black girl would hit you. <laughs> Man, she'd whip my butt <laughs> she wanted to, you know? And those are the things that, that I think, I, I think just the, the little things about living in that society, yeah, it was segregated. We didn't go to school together. You know, there were, there were you know, white water fountains and black water fountains. I used to drink out of the black water fountains all the time because I thought it was somehow special, you know. So, you, you know, we, but we're, you know, we're kids. But it's those little things that just tell you that people are people. Mm-hmm. You know, and they were they were fighting against something that I didn't understand. You know, uh, a few years ago, and this is maybe five years ago, I, I went down. I started doing some oral histories in Rolling Fork, and I and I got um, I got Robert Mor- Morganfield, who's Muddy's half brother, um, to come and talk to me, and I did like a ninety minute oral history with him. And he's a fascinating man. You talk about a gentleman and somebody who is upright and did the right thing. But he told me how he lost his job at the John Deere place. He was a mechanic there. He lost his job because he went to re- and registered for, to vote. And, you know, it just broke my heart to know that this is what, you know, what people did, people that I went to church with, all these older people that I looked up to, they believed that. They believed that the races need to be needed to be separated. So how do you come to terms with that? It's very hard. I think you know once once you start becoming aware of things and and you see people, you know, as equals, you know, and you, and you see the dire poverty that so many people lived in. You know, I mean it breaks your heart. And and you know, it took me years, you know, of of this guilt, you know, to really come to terms with that. Um you know, and you kind of want to go overboard with it and it'll let me give every black person some money here, you know, reparations or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, but it's, uh, you know, you can't change history. It was a terrible time in our history. And, and there were some brutal things that happened in the Delta uh, when they were, you know, signing people up to vote and, and the students who came down there. I was fascinated by the COFO workers, the white kids who came from the North. I did, I think, I thought they were crazy. I thought, you do not know what you're getting into down here. How how did you view the North? You know, I thought that, I thought that, that the students were the bravest people or maybe even a little stupid, maybe a little, not stupid, but naive. Right. Because I don't know that they realized how truly dangerous it was once you back somebody into a corner, once you back certainly a racist into the corner, and all these people had kind of lived their lives thinking that, well, I may be the poorest white redneck in Mississippi, but you know what? At least I'm not black. And that was, that was what 
that's how they pitted the races against one another. And it was it, it comes all down to economics. You know that. I know that. Dr. King knew that. You know, everybody knew that. They were just trying to keep people separated because they didn't want us talking among ourselves and saying, hey, you know what? I'm as poor as you are. You're as poor as this guy over here. We need to change some of that. I know it's not perfect at this point, but was there a point in your life where you thought, well, things have gotten way better? Was there a moment where you thought, you know, I see a difference? Yeah, it, it was. And, and, and I will say this about Mississippi. Uh, you know, in, in many places in this country now, you've only seen like uh, uh, black public officials elected, you know, to office um, in the last 20 years. Mississippi, they started doing that in the 70s. So, you know, we had black sheriffs you know, down there and, and, you know, and black people running the county, you know, from the 70s on just because they had the majority. Right. You know, and so, you know, there was some equity at that point, you know, and they were just, they were using the vote and said, hey, you know, we, we can do this. We can run this county. And, and, and they have, and, and it's a great thing. You've seen that kind of throughout the Delta counties that are, you know, uh, primarily black. So when you were growing up, how often would you come to Mississippi, uh, to Memphis? Or would you go to Vicksburg? Or You know, we went to Vicksburg all the time. You know, Vicksburg's kind of our place. Greenville also. Greenville was 35 miles north. Vicksburg, 40 miles south. So we went there all the time. Jackson, Mississippi, you know, we would go over there, but it just didn't appear on our radar. Memphis was our capital. You know, I've always said, you know, Memphis is the capital of the Delta. You know, it doesn't matter that it's in a different state. You know, Memphis is the capital of Mississippi or the Mississippi Delta. How did you view Memphis back then? You know, it was it was this uh, great sprawling place uh, that kind of had everything, and and it always had the reputation of you know being a rough river town, and it's still a rough river town. You know, you get uh, lots of transients through. You know, Memphis was the place, you know, when, when people left the Delta, when all the blues guys, and really the blues guys were about one-tenth of one percent, you know, but, you know, the tens of thousands of people who left the Delta, you know, they would first land in Memphis. You know, you take the bus or the train, you know, to, to Memphis and hang around here and see if it was right. You know, you might have relatives uh, living in Chicago or Gary or Detroit or St. Louis, and, you know, you'd go on up there. And, and it was kind of, you know, it was that reverse migration, you know, looking for something better. So you took that journey as well. As I oh, cor- is, yeah. it, is it correct to say that's the same path you took? It was exactly the same path. I, I didn't, you know, we didn't own any land in the Delta. And if you don't own land, you know, there's not much else to do. You can work on on somebody's farm. But back then, if you had a 2,000-acre plantation, you know, growing primarily cotton, but, but, you know, later than soybeans and things, and now corn. But if you had that, you had to have, I don't know, 100 people working that farm to make it work. Now you can run a a 2,000-acre plantation with four people. You know, because you've got tractors, and that tractor may cost you half a million dollars, but it has GPS, and it's going to lay the roads out straight, and, you know, you've got, you know, all of these, you know, all the seed technology now that every cotton plant is exactly like the one next to it, and, you know, everything's changed with that, and, 
you know, that technology has pushed on technology in other areas in this country. I mean, it, it's not talked about a lot, but man, you know, agricultural technology is really something. I mean, I've, I spent my time on a tractor, you know, and, and it wasn't fun. I know, you know, when I hear, you know, B.B. King saying, well, you know, I just wanted to get off that tractor because I know what it was like. You know, there was an old iron seat and you'd get what we call a croaker sack. They call it a gunny sack or, right. you know, a burlap bag. Or something. But we call them croaker sacks because that's what people, you know, put frogs in, croakers. <laughs> you know, when they, when they go frog gigging, right. a croaker sack. But you'd fold one of those up and that was your cushion on the on the the seat of the tractor. But if you're out there on a tractor, something is going to break every day. Something is going to break. And you're going to be stuck out there in the middle of a field with the sun beating down on you. And you hope that whoever the plantation manager is, is going to come by and see you sitting out there within an hour or so. And then you got to go get a part and then you got to go fix it or you got a flat tire or whatever. That's what I hated about farm work. Because <laughs> something was always breaking. I have to ask, coming from Rolling Forks, and, and the home of Muddy Waters. Tell me about the blues and what it meant to you at that point. Did it mean anything to you at the point? You know, it did. I, there was, uh, you know, I told you that, that our house there was on the, was on the block uh, by the railroad track. Our house faced away from the railroad track on the other side of the block, but on the back side of the block, it was a, our part of town called Blue Front. And, and that was where black people lived. And it was just a long row of shotgun houses, probably 20 houses there. But at the, at the end of that road down by Deer Creek, which runs through Rolling Fork, the forks of the Deer, Deer Creek is <laughs> the Rolling Fork. Um, at the end of that was, was a jug joint, and it was called the Gold Coast. And there was a band there called the Gold Coasters. So in my memory of I, my, some of my first memories are hearing the bass come out of that joke joint. I mean, I, I, can, I can hear it now. Uh, when I was a little kid, and I was probably maybe four or something, because we used to play outside, you know, unsupervised. And, but I slipped off and, and went down to the joke joint, and, and they were, the band was in there practicing, and I stood between the houses there, and there was maybe six feet wide between there but but the bass was so pronounced that I leaned against I leaned against the side of the juke joint and felt the bass I mean you could really hear it loud but I felt it in my body and they were playing that song Watermelon Man you know that song you know they were playing that and I was like I was mesmerized and and that was my my I think my first moment of real musical awareness, but you know, the blues was everywhere. I mean, all the jukeboxes in Rolling Fork, uh, in the black joints, in the cafes and, and the, and the juke joints, uh, all, all of those had Muddy Waters records and because he was from around there, you know, and had yeah. family and stuff, but you know, who was really big on the jukeboxes down there that I never hear anymore? Jimmy Reed. Jimmy Reed was like the dude, yeah, man. Yeah. You know, I always thought that he was like the biggest blues guy in the world because we heard Jimmy Reed songs all the time. Well, and he then, had hits, right? Yeah, he had hits, had. yeah. You know, Big Boss Man and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, 
you know, but there was it was always there. And then by the time the early '60s rolled around, by, I, I was probably 12 or so, and people start doing things early in the Delta. I started drinking <laughs> when I was about 12, and we could go to the juke joints and they would sell us beer. And so you know, and usually they only sold like Falstaff or Jacks. You know, beer, and sometimes you get Budweiser or Bush or something. But but we drank a lot of Falstaff and Bush uh, and and Jack's beer. Um, but the jukeboxes always had great stuff. Always had great stuff. You know, and they always had you know Elvis Presley. You know, uh, and and you know and Jerry Lee Lewis and people like that. So there was a lot of music around down there. So you're a musician. You're a writer. You you. You do photography, you filmmaker, and and many many other things. But what came first? You know, I think the storytelling came first, okay. and, and and I think all of this is one thing. I never think about well, I do this and this and this. I would say, yeah, I'm just a storyteller, and if I need to tell a story by pointing a camera somewhere, then yeah. And if I if I'm shooting a a documentary or or whatever, it's all just telling a story. How did that happen? Like, I mean, I look at your photographs, which you can see on WillieBearden.com, and they're, they're magnificent. They're beautiful. Thank you. Thank and you I, so much. I presume your film work is the same, that it has a, the eye, and you capture things that way. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, here, here's what I think. I came from a long line of storytellers. My grandmother, uh, my mother was from over in the hills of Mississippi, over in uh, Leake County, in a little place called Standing Pine. And... Uh, and she came from a big family. Uh, there, there were nine of them. And in the late afternoons at my grandmother's house, she had, she had ten rocking chairs out on her porch. And, the, and all of them would sit out there in the late afternoon after they were finished with their work and talk. And they would tell stories. And it was always fascinating. And the kids would just kind of sit around and listen. You know, and uh, and my mother was a beautician, or as they called her back then, a beauty operator. <laughs> and she was operating on some beauty. Uh, but I grew up hanging around the beauty shop. And man, let me tell you, if you want to know what's going on in Rolling Fork, just go into the beauty shop, because people will tell their beautician anything. And I used to sit there quiet as a mouse, and listen to the stories. Just people just talking. So, I mean, the art of storytelling is not a lost art, but it's not, it's different. And, and I don't think it's as prominent as it used to be. How does one become a good storyteller? I think, I think that, you, that, you have to, uh, that you have to be inquisitive. I think you have to, you have to you know, have a love for people. I mean, I just, I love language. I love the way people say things. And, you know, and I always, I've always tell the people, gosh, you won't believe what so-and-so said to me, you know, <laughs> and just things like that. But I think I'm listening for those things, you know, and, and God, you know, I get around, I, you know, I get around people like Bobby Rush and I just love to hear him talk because he's like my people, right. you know, and I just, I hear the things he says and the way he puts things and, and that is so special and I hope that never goes away. You know, we need to keep that alive, the way people view the world and how they can tell you how they view the world. But I'm telling, sitting there listening to people's stories, you know, in the beauty shop and then later when I got about 12, I started hanging out in the pool hall 
And so you heard lots of stories in the pool hall. And, and I kind of learned at the knees of these guys who hung out in the pool hall. And, and I used to listen to them about everything. I mean, politics and race and women and love and all this stuff. And, and they would tell us all this stuff, just pontificate all the time. Then when I was about 16, I remember one day I was talking to one of those guys. And there were four or five of them. And I thought, wait a second, Willie. Here, this guy you've been listening to for years is an unemployed alcoholic. <laughs> and that's where you're getting your information. And so I started kind of backing off a little bit then because I thought, you know, here are these guys, they're experts in everything, yet they only hang out the pool hall and get drunk every day. Uh, you know, and, you know, there was a lot of music in the pool hall. And I heard, like, I didn't like country music. I didn't, I didn't think I liked country music until I was gone from there for many years. And then I started thinking, man, I know every one of these songs because that's what played on the jukebox in the pool hall. Was it, was the jukebox the, the main musical source more so than radio? Yeah. I, I, you know, certainly for me because there were jukeboxes everywhere. And I'm telling you, I stuck a mini and nickel in those jukeboxes, man. Because I, I had all these, you know, favorite songs that I listened to, and I was always doing that. Um, we listened to stations, to uh, radio stations, of course, uh, out of uh, out of Monroe, Louisiana, uh, out of Greenville at WDDT in Greenville. Sid Selvage, who was a good friend, and started Bill Street Caravan and all that, used to be a DJ on WDDT. In Greenville, and he used to play blues. Um, but we'd listen to a station out of Jackson. We'd listen to WHBQ out of Memphis. And then at night, when it got dark, we could pick up WLS in Chicago. And man, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, just virtually every night, you know, at nine o'clock, I would tune in and listen to Art Roberts or Dick Biondi uh, on WLS, and they would always play the big top three at nine and stuff like that. So you know, you just you heard music everywhere. When I would go to my grandmother's house, they liked country music, and they would they would sit around. They didn't have a television to way up in the 60s, but they would sit around and look at the radio. <laughs> I mean, they would sit there, you know, on Saturday night and turn the radio on and listen to the Grand Ole Opry, but sit there and watch the radio like something was going to, you could see something. But, you know, it was it was spellbinding, really. Uh, and, you know, I will say this is I, I, I did, I did the films, uh, at the Elvis Presley Birthplace Museum. Mm -hmm. and, and it was one of the great honors of my life because I've done lots of film work for them. But about five years ago, we did, we did this 30-minute film about Elvis's early life. And I took so much of what I wrote from like my grandmother and people like that who were of the generation of Elvis's parents. And I knew these people. And one of the things I wrote about was them saving the battery, not turning on that radio because it worked on a big old battery, you know. Uh, and this was in the in the 30s and 40s. And they would save the battery and they wouldn't turn it on until the stroke of, you know, 8 o'clock on Saturday night you know, when the Opry was coming on and they would all sit around and, and, and listen, That's you know, because they could only buy a battery maybe twice a year or something. Wow. So when you came to Memphis, yeah, at what, age 21? So? Yeah, I, it was uh, 1971. At that point, what did you hope to achieve? 
But were you, what were your goals in life, and did you want to become a filmmaker, writer? Oh no, I had no, I had no idea. I was just a a wild hippie, and I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had gone to I had gone to a junior college uh, for two years in Senatobia, Mississippi, which is about thirty miles south of Memphis, and then I went to Ole Miss for one semester, and Ole Miss wasn't a good fit for me in nineteen seventy one. So I had friends who were living here in Memphis that I had known at the junior college. And so they said, man, you know, just come on up here and live with us. And so I hitchhiked to Memphis and, you know, I started living here. I got a job. Uh, I, I worked as a liquor delivery truck driver. And it was the perfect job for a young idiot like myself. I, I learned Memphis like the back of my hand. And, you know, it was hard work, but I was, you know, young and stupid and smart and uh, not smart, young and stupid and strong. And I didn't mind, you know, carrying the boxes of liquor, you know, into liquor stores. At that time, there were 210 liquor stores in Memphis and they were, you know, North Memphis, South Memphis, everywhere. And I would go around there, man. I loved that. I'd go in and talk to the people who ran the liquor stores. I knew all the guys who hung out in the parking lots and stuff. And so, you know, yet another, you know, learning experience for me. And, and it was probably, you know, I, I always tell people it was the best job I ever had. How, how did you adjust to the, the big city? Was that a big adjustment or not? You know, I was so fascinated. I was just, every day, I was just I was ecstatic to be in the city. I really was. I mean, there were restaurants everywhere, and, and I couldn't afford to go many places. We ate at this meet and three place down on Airways. We lived way down Airways, kind of close to the airport, and um, I lived in this kind of city commune with a bunch of people, you know. And But it was cool, man. It was cool. There were nine of us living in a two-bedroom uh, duplex. But... Man, just driving around. I mean, we would, on the weekends, we'd just get in the car and ride around, you know, because I was fascinated with the city. Uh, we'd go to Overton Park a lot, hang out there, and they always had shows at the Shell. I saw the Allman Brothers at the Overton Park Shell. I saw I saw Steve Cropper when they were doing uh, the, uh, the TMI band, the Trans Maximus band. Uh, you know, just, gosh, everybody. <laughs> I mean, just shows all the time. And there was music all around. Downtown, there was really kind of nothing going on back then. But by about, uh, by the early 70s, they started having like the Beale Street festivals. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd have a festival down on Beale Street and there'd be, not that many people would show up, maybe a thousand people or something like that. But, you know, you'd see folks like, like I remember seeing Gus Cannon, who was in his 90s at the time, and he, and he played his old banjo and, and sang Walk Right In, you know, and Furry Lewis and, and uh, uh, gosh, I, I don't know, just so many of the old blues guys. First time I ever saw B.B. King was at one of those shows, wow. maybe in like 75 or something. Uh, the uh, Club Paradise was open back then. We went a few times to Club Paradise. We didn't hang out there a lot, but, you know, Bobby Bland and people like that, Johnny Taylor and all those folks, you know, were around. So there was a lot of music around Memphis, and, and I, I just loved it. So how did you become, well, the storyteller through, through books, through films? How did that well, you know, I had uh, I, I went back to college and, and I was uh, I was a teacher's aide for Memphis City Schools uh, for about a year and a half, and then I substitute taught while I was going to college. 
and about 1978, I kind of had this real change of attitude. I, th- I thought, you know what, I'm just kind of living making the least amount of money that I can get by on and maybe I ought to change my program here because I really thought I had something to say. I thought I had something bigger to do, you know? Um, so So how old were you at that point? I was 20. I was, I just turned 28. Okay. So my friend George, who's my business partner now, and we've been friends since we were in junior college. Uh, he had worked at this, at this company called motion picture lab. And he said, and George was producing the news here in Memphis. He had gone through college. He was pr- producing the news at the NBC affiliate here. He later went on to produce Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood in Hollywood and, and just retired a couple of years ago. But So he told me, he said, why don't you go down to Motion Picture Lab and see if they'll give you a job? And so I went down there, and I told the guy, whose <laughs> name was Jim Solomon, I said, I said, Mr. Solomon, you don't know me from Adam, but I want to tell you this. I want to work for you. And if you hire me, I promise you, I'll be the best person you ever hired. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I don't know what I'm going to have you do, but I want to hire you. <laughs> he did. He, he took the chance on me. And I, and I wound up working there for nine years. And I started off running a film processing machine. Then a few months later, they put me in what was called color timing and it was film set up uh for for being you know taking original film and setting it up so it would print correctly then i moved into color timing and and i did i fixed color on film for about a year and then this would have been what kind of material this is this was all 16 millimeter uh film and this was before video or anything you know so, and this would have been television work or this uh, yeah it was it was everything from you know religious uh, dramas to sports films to student films to football just everything you can imagine we we had a lot of old uh tv shows that we would remaster like bonanza and things like that so you know i did color correction on probably i don't know a hundred bonanza shows and things you know so just everything you could imagine Uh, you know tv commercials everything and we had we had clients from all over this country and so then I became a film editor, and I actually was cutting film, and, and so I, I could still make a hot splice in a quick. Uh, but I did that, and then uh, in 1980, I had been there about two years, and, and, and they asked me to go on the road as an account exec. And I thought, man, I've, I've never sold anything, you know, and I, and, I, and I didn't know about wearing a suit and tie and all that, but I thought maybe this is, you know, this is what I need to do. So I did. So for seven years, I traveled all over the country uh, for them. I traveled every other week and I got out there and I learned business. I had always been very intimidated by business people, right. you know, and I got out there and I saw that not only could I compete, I could excel, you know, and, and it was all just people to people. It, it was all, you know, just getting with people and saying, hey, listen, this is what we do. You know, let me help you out. And, and, and I made good money. I, I helped them. I, I, I think by the second year I, I had my territory, I had like tripled the amount of money they were making. So, you know, I, I was I was doing well with that. 
and I was coming into my own as a person, mm-hmm. you know, which was the thing. And I had a lot of time on my hands too. When you're out on the road selling, you know, people don't want to see a salesman before about 10 in the morning. And then everybody wants to have lunch with you because you pay, right? <laughs> so everybody so you take people to lunch. And then nobody wants to see a salesman after about three. So I worked about five hours a day, but I had another 19 hours a day to fill. Right. Whether I was in Minneapolis or Milwaukee or Pittsburgh or Omaha or Des Moines or Louisville, Kentucky or Kansas City or wherever. And... I went to see movies. I read a lot. I would carry a guitar with me everywhere I went. And I would sit in my room and play my guitar. And I had a lot of time. And uh, just to, I, I started writing a lot. I was journaling a lot. I was writing poetry at the time. And, and, I, and I learned, I think from writing poetry, I learned the economy of language. And I learned how to say things in a very short amount of space that maybe had some impact. And, and I was really, I see now that it's been, you know, what, 35 years ago when I was doing that. But I see now that that was what I was learning. I was really doing kind of my journeyman kind of work out there. I had the time to do all this. I was reading a lot of history, a lot of history, and especially things about the South. You know, um, you know, just the books that were, you know, very important to me, you know, uh, Robert Palmer's book, Deep Blues, you know, really, really tells the story. And, and everything I would read in that, I'd go, oh, my God, I know who he's talking about. Oh, I know this place. Okay, so that was what was happening, you know. And it was really putting a lot of the pieces together for me by doing that. And so by about 1986 or 87, I was starting to feel like, you know what, I think I could do this on my own. I would go on location with people, like, because I knew people all over the place. And of course, the further north you get, everybody would say, man, you're the biggest character I've ever met in my life. You know, I think, well, you need to come, come back to Mississippi. I'll show you some characters. But, you know, I just, I had lots of friends. And so people would always invite me to go on location with them. <clears throat> so I might be in Des Moines and somebody would say, hey, you know, we're going to be shooting for the next two days. Come out and hang with us. So I'd go out there and, you know, Mako, it's, it's weird, but I would, I would, watch what they were doing and I would think you know I think I would maybe put the camera over here or I don't think they got the lighting exactly right or this performance by this person is not quite there you know it doesn't seem authentic so it just kind of hit me one day you know what I think I could do this and so I started producing all of our in-house things and just kind of practicing then I thought you know what I need to go out on my own so I took a big jump and went out on my own in 87, and I've been at it ever since. How difficult was that leap? You know, it was, it was very difficult because I was in line to become president of Motion Picture Lab in the next couple of years, and I quit a job that paid really, really well, but I wanted to, I wanted to do something other than deal with people problems and money problems, and that's what I would have been doing as president of that company. So I took a jump and, and I took about a, I don't know, even back then I took probably about a 30 grand cut and pay that first year. And I had two children in diapers by this time and, and all this. And, and I thought, well, you know, I've made a big mistake, but you know what? I just kept working and I, and I, and I was doing anything that I could do. The first scripts I wrote, corporate scripts, I did 
you know, just somebody called me and said, Hey, I know you do this, but do, are you a writer? And I went, yes, I am. <laughs> and the first script I wrote was for, uh, this company Dobbs international services, and they were the airline food people. And the first script I wrote was how to dip and serve ice cream on an airplane. <laughs> Think about that. And it was a 20 minute script. <laughs> But, you know, it, it was really funny, and, and they, t- of course, just tore the script up, and I had to go back and rewrite it, and, you know, but that's where I learned, you know, people who didn't care about me or people who didn't think I was so talented, they would, oh, I hate this, <laughs> go redo it, you know, but you learn how to be kind of dispassionate about that. You're writing and, and write to what they need, and that's what I needed to learn. Is what do they need? Right. It's not what I think about it. You know, I had also started writing some jingles back then, and I was I was I was doing that. And for 18 years, I wrote the jingle package for the Kansas City Royals baseball team. Really? Yeah, I did. And I always produced it here in Memphis and used my friends on the sessions and people like Jimmy Jameson sang it. Uh, Jimmy Griffin, who was in that band Bread, he he sang one year. Uh, Reba Russell sang many of them. Jimmy Davis, just all these folks, you know. But, you know, I always had good budgets. Why why Kansas City Royals, though? Uh, I knew this guy, uh, Dennis Kreider, who was from Mississippi. And he was the um, he was the VP of marketing and broadcasting for the Royals. And when he went there, he said, "Hey, listen, I want you to do the jingle for us." I said, "Man, I'm there." <laughs> you know, so so we did. I did it for 18 years. I mean, actually, really long after he was gone, he he uh, ultimately went to the NCAA. And he was like the number two guy at the NCAA for many years. and But I stayed with the Royals for a long time. So it was, it was really great. Um, but learning how to do what people need. Like, I always tell people, you know, back then, you know, I was writing these jingles. Now, I was listening to a lot of jazz back then. But I never wrote a jazz jingle. <laughs> because that's it's not what I want. Right. It's what they need. But there came a time where I presume that you started doing some of the things that you want. Yes. How did that come about? Because, I mean, one thing is working for other people and learning the craft. But yeah. I believe that you, you do a lot of things that I, I know you still get paid from other people. But you yeah. do some of your own stuff yes. and some of your own passions. How did that happen? Well, uh, by about 19... Well, the first documentary I did was in 1993. And I had started smoking cigars, and I started seeing that cigars were getting to be a big deal. You know, they started opening cigar bars and things like that. So I made a documentary on cigars, and I went to the Dominican Republic and got with the Fuente family, the Arturo Fuente family, and they just opened their factories to me, their fields, and and Carlito Fuente just is still a great friend of mine, but so I made the first documentary on cigars. So, and that was just, I want to make a documentary yep. on cigars. Was it commissioned or was Nope, it? it was out of my own pocket. And what did you hope to accomplish? With you that? know, I wanted to, I, I wanted to see if I could write something and shoot it and edit it myself and, and pull the music together and all that. I wanted to see if I could do that. I wanted to see if I could do it successfully. So it's like a 48 minute long show. I did it. I got it out there. We sold it. 
This is back in the VHS days when you could sell a VHS like special kind of right, interest right. tape for like 40 bucks. So I quickly made my money back. And really all I had was, you know, uh, airfare and hotels to the Dominican Republic. I went down there twice. The Fuentes came here to Memphis and we did the, uh, the interviews here. But I did it. I had an avid media composer back then. I just bought my first nonlinear editing system for 85 grand. <laughs> you know, so I was trying to pay for that. But so I got this thing out and we were so fortunate that, that we got reviewed really well all over the place. The Wall Street Journal, the Dallas Morning Herald or whatever it is, you know, uh, Playboy Magazine, Penthouse, you know, all of these places uh, were reviewing us. Uh, uh, Billboard Magazine reviewed it. So I got a call from this guy at Time Life Home Video, and they were like, you know, the biggest player. Right. And then he said, are you a distributor? I said, no, I'm just selling this myself. He said, well, we're the biggest distributor in the world. How about we take this? And so they licensed the video for me, and it sold for the next, gosh, the next 10 years probably. And I made some pretty good money on it. Wow. And that was your first little that was documentary. That first documentary. Did then, you ever have any downturn when you... Because it's difficult making a documentary. And the, oh, the longer yeah. I'm involved in it, the, the more difficult it seems to be. It's a... It's an amazing thing to do amazing work in, in documentary filmmaking. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I, I doubted myself all the time. And, and as you may have seen, and I don't know, I, I'm sure it happens everywhere. There's a lot of professional jealousy out there. Yeah. I would have people call me all the time, other filmmakers in Memphis, and go, Where'd, where'd you get the grant to do that, Willie? I'd say, You know what? I didn't get a grant. I just did it out of my own pocket. Oh, really? You Which know, it's not, it's not recommended. That's not, you know, no, it's right. not, but, but nobody was knocking on my door asking me to do this. Right. So by about 98, I started, I did another thing. It was called visualizing the blues and it was a film. It was a 30 minute film that was to accompany this traveling uh, photography exhibition and everybody from Matthew Brady from the Civil War up to Bill Eggleston, you know, in the 70s, you know, and this thing traveled all over the country for about two years and I did the 30-minute film that went along with it and so if it was in Memphis, then our local PBS channel played it. Charleston, South Carolina, Miami, wherever, so it played all over the place and people liked that. So the local PBS people called me and said, hey, we love this. What are you doing next? And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I doing next? And so I said, you know what? I said, Overton Park is going to be 100 years old next year. That would, would have been 2000. I said, I was thinking about doing a documentary on that. They said, great. So I did that one out of my own pocket. Wow. And I did the next couple out of my own pocket. Now, I will say this. I, I had I had help from a friend of mine who, who gave me a little bit of money for finishing funds because when you cut an hour-long show, it takes me a month to cut an hour-long show. It just, you know, just takes me that long. Right. So, you know, you're kind of doing nothing else. So my friend helped me with some of that. So I, I was very, 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 very happy. Um, but that was the best investment I could have ever made in myself by doing those things. And I did it my way. 
I didn't want to take the money from the TV station. It wasn't much money anyway because I knew they would want to tell me how to write it or how to shoot it or how to edit. And I didn't really want that. I wanted to do it on my own terms and I wanted to own my own copyrights, which I still do. So I did those things. And after I had done about three of them and they'd been on television and to pretty good acclaim, you know, people started calling me about doing museum work. And all of a sudden... I had moved out of doing training videos for FedEx and international paper and people like that to doing all this great museum work that paid well, that let me do what I do. You know, and people would tell me, I, I mean, they weren't throwing the script back at me and going, ah, I don't like that. They were going, oh my God, this is great. And so I started thinking, this is what I was meant to do. And so it was it was a it was a fairly natural thing for me to start writing some books. Uh, those Arcadia books, the picture books, had just started coming out. It was all about local history, and I would wind up with hundreds of pictures left over. You know, after I had done a documentary, so I thought, why not do a book on Overton Park? Why not do a book on cotton culture? I had just done the Cotton Museum. And, and, and talking about cotton culture in Memphis and the South and the world and how that, you know, pushed the blues world along. Same thing with doing blues. I did, did a, a museum down in Mississippi, you know, uh, the Tunica River Park. And we had a lot about blues and how cotton culture pushed that along. So all of these things were kind of natural for me to do. And the encouragement I got from people was, was I couldn't have done it without that kind of encouragement. And people but also kept because encouraging you're very me. good at it. Well, I you know, maybe, but but I say the encouragement helped me gain the confidence to continue doing it. And I hope that I got better with every film. I mean, I look at some things now that I did 15, 18 years ago and I think, oh, it's a bad cut or I wish I hadn't said it that way or whatever. But you know, you learn. And you do things because the one thing, and you know this as a filmmaker, it doesn't matter what happens, only that you finish the thing. Right. It has to get done and be seen by people. It doesn't matter if you're working on something for 20 years. If you don't finish it, it doesn't matter. Did you ever, I know we all have doubts, yep. and it's, a, it's part of the game, I think, yep. the part of the process. Did you ever question yourself on doing this? Oh, yeah. All the time. And, and and other people would question me. I mean, I had like blue scholars tell me, you know, what what kind of credentials do you have? And, you know, and I just started telling people, hey, man, I'm just a guy, you know, uh, hopefully I've, I've got some knowledge about this. I grew up in it, and I think I can connect a lot of things. I, I think I understand the context through which all this happened, and that's all I'm trying to do is is – present it to people. You know, when I've read, I wrote a book, Memphis Blues, uh, that's one of those Arcadia books. And, it, and it's, you know, it's photographs. It's 240 photographs with captions. And people say, well, that's just, you know, that's history light. You know what it is? It's something that you can go down to Tater Reds on Beale Street and you can pick up a copy of that. And if you're from, I don't care where you're from, you can be from Minot, North Dakota, you look through that book for about an hour and you get it. You understand where the blues came from and why it's important and why you're standing there on Beale Street. That's all I was trying to do. Not everybody's going to read that 600-page book. 
Not everybody has that semester of their lives to go take a course. I think that the tens of thousands of people who come here from all around the world every year, they may just experience this while they're here. They may never think about blues and blues culture again. But you know, while they're here, I want them to get it. And may, and that's where I fit in, I think. Is there, I mean, with all the things that you do, is there one thing that gives you more joy than anything else? You know, I love I loved doing the, the museum work. I know that right now when we're sitting here on May 13th, 2017, I know that right now that at the Gateway to the Blues Museum on Highway 61 in Tunica, people are watching my films. I've got, what, six films in there. Uh, I know that right now at the Elvis Presley Birthplace Museum in Tupelo, Mississippi, people are watching my films and listening to my words about Elvis Presley. I know that right now at the Cotton Museum, right down the street at Front Street in Union, people are watching those films that I wrote. People are reading those text panels that I wrote on the wall there talking about cotton culture and blues and all this stuff. So yeah, those things are like little sailboats that you make and you set them off to sail and they sail forever. Do you approach making documentaries or little films for museums any differently than you would to air on PBS or for, for any other medium? Not at all. Okay. You know, you can stretch out with an hour film and really say a lot. Uh, with with a museum film, uh, it's it's like my, my exhibit designer friend Scott Blake, uh, who does all of these things. He owns Design Five Hundred, and and he's he just did the new Mike Kappas uh, exhibit uh, at the uh, Blues Hall of Fame right. down the street. But so Scott will tell me, Willie, you have seven minutes to explain cotton culture, <laughs> you know, or something like that, and I'll go, okay, sure. And so and you know what I was talking about earlier, like with writing poetry. I think that economy of language, you know, okay, I've only got this much. I only have 200 words on this big text panel to write. Let me make that so somebody who may not have any idea about this, they can read this and they're a little smarter or maybe a little more, a little more knowledgeable about what we're trying to do. So a lot of your work is around the South. Yes. Right? I mean, obviously you're based in the South, and, yep. um, but many um, I mean, I noticed there's something about Florence, Italy and one of the master series. But yeah. other than that, everything to me seems like it's really focused around Mississippi, Tennessee or yeah. the Delta. Tell me what the South means to you and, and, and how you view the work that you do. Is it for the people in the South or is it for everybody? I mean, obviously it's for everybody, but yeah. how do you approach it? You know, I, I want to be genuine and I want to be authentic. I don't, you know, I don't make things up. Uh, I do editorialize, you know, in my pieces because I can. I want people to understand the South. I want people to understand that, yeah, we do have a tortured history. And, but out of all of that came pretty much everything we know as popular culture. Certainly all the music we know came from here. All of it. All, just about all the literature we know came from here. And it's because of, you know, those, those two tectonic plates rubbing together, 
you know, and, 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 you know, it's the white culture and the black culture and, and the people who were on top and the people who wanted to stay on top and all of that, those tectonic plates rubbing together created something that has gone around this world and will never die. You know, I always say this, like, like I, w- I was watching the Grammys a couple of years ago and that girl, Adele, you know, she was on there. And mm-hmm. so she came on and she won an award. I couldn't understand what she was saying. <laughs> and so I had to, I had the DVR thing, you know, so I backed it up and I had to listen to it like three times to get what she was saying. Then about half an hour later, Adele gets up there and sings. And you know what? It sounded like she was my neighbor here in Memphis. And what I realized is that everybody aspires to sing like they're from Memphis. Everybody. You listen to Bruce Springsteen sing. Then you listen to him talk. He talks like some guy from New Jersey, okay? But when he sings, he sings like he's rolling for her, you know? You listen listen to Mick Jagger. When he talks, he sounds like a guy from London. When he sings, he sings like he's from the South. What does that say? You know, I mean, what does that say? There are very few people who sing in their natural voice. I mean, that maybe that guy from the Talking Heads or something. You know, <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah for sure. It's it's something that is so deep, and it's and it's just it it is what people aspire to. So. I always think that I am honoring that thing, whatever we could call that thing. I think I'm always trying to honor that in what I write or what I, I present as a photograph or as a film or whatever. I, if I'm talking to a group of people in an old folks home or whatever, you know, that's what I'm trying to get there. That, yeah, there's an authenticity to the South. And you know what? I always think God never made a good without a bad, a hot without a cold, a a smooth without a rough, you know, or a sweet without a salty, you know, but that is what life is. And and that is kind of what we, I I think what we have to find some kind of joy in knowing that that has spread all over the world. It's what people look to us for. It's what those people right down the street on Beale Street today are looking for. They're looking for, you call it mojo, you call it whatever you want to call it, but it's something. You feel it. Yeah, for sure. Don't you feel yeah, it? Yeah. It's something. And and so I think that's maybe what I'm trying to honor. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Man, it's an honor. It's an honor. I love your work, and, and I'm, I'm so, I, I was honored that you asked me. Well, you know, many years ago, I remember calling you and asking you for advice, and you didn't really know me, and then you took the time to share your thoughts, and that meant a lot to me, and I've always admired you as a person, and the more I get to know you, the more I admire, so uh, I'm thrilled that we could have this little chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.